Welcome to the CPA Advisory Show. I am Jeremy Wells, CPA, and with me as always is my co-host, Chris Hervishan. Chris, good morning. Good morning, Jeremy. How are you? Super excited uh, for this episode. We've got a guest here, uh, Michael. Michael, uh, why don't you introduce yourself? Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, what you're doing uh, right now and how you got to that Point. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having me on today. Really excited about this. Uh, I My name is Michael Myhouse. I'm born and raised in San Diego. And this year, I started a firm, a CPA firm that's specifically focused on retirement plan audits. So any company of a certain size that sponsors some sort of retirement plan needs an audit eventually. And as soon as they cross over that threshold, that's a whole discussion. We won't have what it is. Uh, I come in and I do an independent audit annually for them as part of required filing. So I stumbled into that niche like about maybe six years ago and haven't left it since what goes into an audit of a retirement plan i think for most of us whether we're on the contributing side or maybe even the tax advisor side which is really you know most of my experience with retirement plans is just telling the client hey go meet up with a financial advisor or use one of these online services set up your account fill out whatever paperwork they ask you for and just make sure you're getting the money in and you know I'll tell you what the tax benefit is. What 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 else happens? I mean, what what's the rest of the story? What do we not know about? Well, thankfully to not panic people listening to this. It usually triggers around 100. There's some there's some nuances to the, when that number happens. So it's not until you have 100 employees eligible participating or in the plan. So thankfully most people avoid it. Like when I start my plan, not going to have that for a while. But what goes into it typically is just a review of the fundamental things that are going into the plan, right? So most people understand these. You contribute as an employee, and hopefully your employer contributes with you. You have some investment gains and losses. The Department of Labor, which oversees it, really cares about is the participant's money being taken care of? Is it being handled correctly? And is the right amount going into the plan? So that's really what we're looking at. We look at HR documents. We look at payroll documents. The list kind of exhaustive. We typically work with some sort of um, custodian of those assets. So, you know, everyone's familiar with a Fidelity or a T. Rowe Price or a Charles Schwab. So they'll give us information, the plan sponsor, the employer will give us information. And then we just make sure that it's, it's compliance, uh, it's compliant with the rules. So we're a very compliance driven audit. And that's an odd thing I like about the niche. And also can be a, a drawback is it's kind of a commodity. Nobody would do this if they didn't have to. Was the, this is the best way I'd explain it. I, I worked in tax prior to doing this and People loved a good tax CPA or EA because, hey, I'm going to save you money and here's the check you're getting at the end of the day versus I have to do this thing because the government put a gun to my head and you're the person I have to do it with. So I try to I try to make the relationship a little bit better, but it is an interesting dynamic there. I'm revenue guaranteed by the government, but not everyone wants to do it. What, what are some of those rules like at a very basic sense sure. from, you know, from from my perspective of somebody that would be putting money into my employer's you know retirement plan? Like, what, how, how are you going to help me? Yeah. The biggest way is to make sure the plan's running how it's been set up. So we see a lot of errors that are unintentional. It's like malicious fraud is something I've maybe seen once in my career over hundreds and hundreds of plan audits. It's mostly people just not understanding the complexity of them. So often they don't know how their plan defines compensation. So they're not giving people enough contributions. They forgot to give them employer contribution on uh, a bonus, or they're not making sure the money gets into the plan quickly enough. We see this sometimes with cash strapped employers, they'll delay taking the money from the participants payroll and actually depositing into the plan. And there's just, it's a compliance nightmare for most people. So thankfully there's a lot of services that are helping people. There's outsourced fiduciary services, really good investment advisors are getting educated on the topic. But 
that's primarily where we help them is making sure, are you operating the plan the way that you said you should be and want to be operating this? And are you operationally doing all of those things? So, you know, the, the times it feels fun because it is very compliance driven is there's been some times where we found errors and a participant gets, you know, $6,000, $10,000 plus deposited in their account because somebody messed something up. So I was talking to a friend and a uh, colleague, former coworker of mine, they had found an error that was $50,000 of participant money. So that that's when you feel a little bit better other than what they call taking and tying or compliance-based work. Yeah. Yeah, I can imagine. So it, like I said, on the employee side, you know, I'm just I'm just seeing the amount taken out of every paycheck. Exactly. Right. And and I'm just assuming that it's making it into the account that the yeah. right amount is in there, that the match is following along with it, that my account's growing and that it's safely invested, you know, on my behalf and all that kind of stuff. So there's like a um there there's a fiduciary aspect there. A huge you know, fiduciary too, aspect. Right? And yeah. yeah. There's a lot of litigation, not so much at the size that I audit. I don't do any sort of public plans. But it's a massive litigation front, like on this ERISA field is large plans, think multinational corporations. If you mismanage an investment for 10 years, that could be half of somebody's account balance. So it's a really interesting and emerging field. I think it's interesting. I have no idea if other people find it interesting. You said you were doing tax. So what got you more into you know this audit? It, it was one of those accidental things because I love the niche. I think it's really a unique opportunity, but I just started as a basic intern in tax, got hired as a tax staff, and I, I made it all the way up to manager before I transitioned to the EBP space, uh, employee benefit plan audit space. And what happened was accidental. I did them as summer work. That's typically why firms do them, just to fill that slower dead time in the summer. I got assigned to them randomly. It would have either been that or nonprofit. Uh, and I stayed in them one year. I was like, okay, this is fine. Then we had some turnover in key seniors and managers in that position. So next year they said, hey, you have some experience. Would you like to come back? Sure, let's do it at summer work and I don't have to travel. And then the third year, the, the senior manager who oversaw the entire division down here in San Diego left the firm. And they said, hey, how do you feel? I think I was a senior at the time about starting to run things. And I said, okay, like this is kind of wild, but sure. And then when I was at that transition point as a manager, I said, I can't do both of these. And you both get this, like there's a technical level of expertise you have to be have, you have to have to continue to advance in your career and re actually do your clients um, good by your clients and give them really good service. And I just couldn't maintain both of those in the ERISA and tax space. And I pulled off what I think was the greatest exit timing of all time. And I left right before the Tax Cuts and Job Act. And so I had none of this nonsense with COVID and PPP loans, the ERC. I, I avoided the Tax Cuts and Job Act. And I just, I told my firm, hey, I'll just run this. I'll grow it. And I'm not going to work a traditional, you know, January to April busy season anymore. So that was my very rambling, like, transition into this is I love tax. I worked in complex construction tax for a while. So those were some really interesting tax planning opportunities. And, and then I just ended up here through a series of unfortunate events and, and exits from a company, as I'm sure most people are. So what was that moment like when you decided to go out on your own? And how'd you make that decision? That one? Yeah, it was was a long time ago. And it was great. And I, my wife is amazing, because I told her after a call with somebody um, that I, was, I need to do this. I think she said, well, about time. Um, she's been asking me for a while. <laughs> she said I would go through cycles <laughs> of depression. And I'd be surprised if most people don't do this in public accounting. Is you have a good year, but then something, you have a bad busy season or clients that are being really challenging, or you feel like you're not getting support from a firm. You say, this is the year I'm going to quit. Then you have a month or two off. You're like, yeah, it's not that bad. I really like the flexibility. You know, I kind of control my own schedule. I work from home now. And then you do the cycle all over again. So we've been, uh, we've been married for almost eight years and she's like, so when are you? 
she's seen the cycle eight times. And she's like, so what are you actually going to follow through with that? <laughs> I was like, when I feel like it. What really pushed me over the edge was I cold reached out to somebody on LinkedIn. I had been tra- following him for a few years just because we knew similar people in the industry. Um, he's on um, kind of the Midwest and he started his own firm. I think it was four years ago and he just exploded with growth. So first few years he was doing really well. I, you can see public record how many audits every firm has. So I was just curious. I was like, oh, I wonder how many audits he's doing. He was doing you know, 17, he was doing 20. That was really great. And then one year I see him jump up to 55 or something like that. And that was wild. Like if you could do basic math on the fee structure on these, that's, you're doing very well. So I cold reached out to him. He was incredibly kind, just walked me through it. Um, and then asked me, you know, why the hell aren't you doing this? Kind of like on my wife's side. And so I didn't have a good answer for that. I was talking about the challenges I was seeing. And so he really was the one who pushed me over the edge, was incredibly supportive, transitioned some clients to me when he couldn't serve them any longer. Just that it was, it literally was one of those opportunity and luck combinations. You know, the only reason I knew him was because I reached out to him, but I was just incredibly blessed or lucky with how he helped me out. So I was, I'll be grateful to him and my wife forever for supporting this move out. So you got a gentle nudge. Oh yeah. A couple gentle nudges. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. But, so a lot of our listeners are probably either in the beginning stages of starting their own firm or starting a component of their firm, which would be CAS or thinking about starting their own firm. And we've all been there, right? So I'm just kind of wondering, what are some of the things that you wish that you knew when you first started? And what are some of the, some of the things that you would point out to somebody who's, you know, basically a newbie? Yeah. So I'm really grateful that the firm I left was very supportive of what I was doing in terms of gave me room to run with it and grow it for several years. And I didn't leave because I didn't like them. It was just, I saw an opportunity that I wanted to pursue at a faster rate and with higher investments. So I'll say that first of all. And the reason I say that is I was grateful. I had the chance to build a network learn business development, learn how to run a large practice and manage employees before I left. Because mm. it's really, it was stressful with the understanding that I knew I could bring in business. Um, I had brought in, I think probably 150,000 plus of business before I left my other firm. And I was that was really starting to take off. So I, w- I had that confidence that if I leave, I know I'm technically a competent, but I also know that I can make relationships and 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 bring in actual work and get money in the door, which is the number one concern if you're starting your own firm. So I'm glad I was able to do that while working with someone else. Uh, I learned how to develop processes and design those. I did training for large groups of people. I managed a team and just having that experience beforehand, now I'm managing a team of myself. And, but having that experience beforehand was so helpful because there's there's no way to get that experience other than time, I think. And if you're trying to build a company, build out your structure, start networking, start learning all these skills right off the bat. I just, it was stressful enough for me with those skills already in place. And I just can't imagine what it'd be like. So if you can focus on those while getting a salary without taking risk and then transition to your own firm, I think it's a really, it's an easier way, let's say, than doing it the other way. I love that. Um, tell us a little bit about how you did BizDev and what, what does that look like? Because that's everybody's big concern when you first go out on your own and when you're first breaking into a niche or something like that. Like, how are we actually going to bring money in? So what are some of those strategies and tactics that you use that have worked? Yeah, I stole it from a partner who was phenomenal at business development and just applied it to my niche. And it basically, the strategy is simple. And that's who are the key decision makers that would first be in front of a client or a potential referral source when they find out they need your service? 
And then are those people people who will refer to you? And if so, how do you build relationships? The the context that I learned it in with a partner was uh, construction contractors. So if you want to do any public works contracting with a city or a state or a, even nationally, you need to be bonded. And all that means is an insurance company says, hey, if this contractor is busto and doesn't finish the work, we'll pay to have it finished. So it's an insurance policy against default by contractors. And everybody knows contractors never default, so it's easy. <laughs> um, so he would get in front of the bonding agents. And these agents want financial statements before they say, yeah, we'll, we'll be on the hook for a $10 million, $100 million plus contract. And, you know, as you can expect, most construction contractors are not primarily focused or oriented towards bookkeeping. So typically their books weren't super clean. But if you got a reviewed financial statement that was clean in a format that the bonding agents liked, that it had required information that they might, supplemental information they might be able to use in addition to the typical gap stuff, then they found that that was a massive source of their business development. So I just stole that and said, okay, who knows these plans need an audit? Typically, you know, you need an audit when your employee list coming out of your payroll software says, oops, you're over that original number. And there's there's outsourced administrators. Think of it kind of like a bookkeeper for a plan, but they help with compliance. And then there's investment advisors and there are the actual providers themselves, the Fidelities, the Transamerica. So I made relationships with all of those people. So when an audit triggers, they say, hey, my client needs an audit. I go, or typically those people like to work with me. We've worked together in the past. We refer business back and forth. And then I'm first of mine, hopefully, with the core group of people I work with. Uh, and it's just relationships, just relationships. So we've done work together over time. I've done good work for them. They've done good work for me. And that just builds a mutual respect. So your client is the the actual employer, right? Correct. The one yeah. that would be overseeing the, the retirement program for their employees. So, you know, one of the things that seems to come up a lot in the discussion of audit, especially you know, over the last, I don't know what, couple decades, right? Post Enron, right? Is the, the relationship between the client and the auditor, right? Yeah. And, and the potential for, of course, all the conflicts of interest and, and all that kind of stuff, right? So, you know, what are the, you know, in, in this particular niche that you've chosen, right? What are the potential hazards, the potential conflicts of interest? And, you know, what would somebody wanting to go into this line the way you did, what would they need to be aware of yeah. as potential pitfalls in that niche? And, and how do you overcome those in your own practice? Yeah, absolutely. So it's, I would start with a general understanding of audit. So we're a subsegment of traditional audit. So understanding auditor independence, there's a ton of rules, there are guides for how to assess your independence. So start there. Specifically to these plans, you have to be careful of how fee structures work, how referral structures work. And so I work with a lot of partners, but I had to explain to one partner, they're like, oh, we have this great referral program where if you send somebody to our to our system, you can get money. I was like, no way. Like, I, I absolutely cannot have it. I can't take money from anyone by referring. I refer clients to people that I think will be a good fit for them or to a group of people. I say, hey, talk to these four TPAs or people I've worked with. Uh, but I absolutely can't receive money. So that's a big part is making sure I'm not part of any sort of incentive comp structures, whereas it's possible for if you're doing tax. I know a lot of people, I think, get some sort of referral fee for, say, a QuickBooks subscription. Your client's using QuickBooks. You can get them a discount. You get a little bit of that. So that's completely fine on that perspective, not from the auditor's perspective. So from my perspective, just make sure that I don't get any sort of compensation for any of the places I'm sending people and then following the standard AICPA independence guidelines, and just making sure that I don't have any sort of relationships with 
uh, the people that I'm working with, right? So if a family member, and it's all laid out clearly, is running a company, I obviously can't audit that company. Depend, there's a very clear structure of flowchart. So all that's the, the key part. Uh, in my industry, honestly, the biggest part is audit quality. And this is what's wild to me, but like 40% of the people doing these audits are doing them wrong, which is like a mind boggling number. Like literally you take the entire state of auditing in the United States of America and 40% of those audits would likely be wrong if, if looked at. And so most of what we're focused on is how do we increase that audit quality? And it's a very dry, very technical area, honestly, is the fact. And I'm not exactly the most exciting party conversation when people ask, what do you do? Uh, <laughs> I ended up just telling them, because uh, I was sick of explaining it, that I run in OnlyFans and that, you know, they seem much more interested in that. So yeah, they're taking our job. So uh, so that we're really concerned with audit quality. And so how do you make sure that you're actually performing an audit that meets standards and won't get kicked back. Cause that's the worst thing you do. Referral partner sends you client has it. And then they get a notice from the DOL saying, Hey, we're, we're kicking back your audit to you. It wasn't done correctly. Yeah. That's, that's interesting. I, I, on one hand, right. There's, there's professional license to interpret things slightly differently mm -hmm. um, from others. And yeah, the, the, there was a joke from an instructor in a tax class I was taking that, you know, if you, if you put 10 tax experts in a room together with the same set of information, you would get 11 different ways of preparing that. <laughs> I mean, and so, is, you know, is I, that I, actually I, a joke? Yeah, right. Exactly. It might, it, it, you know, it, it's, it's about as real a joke as you can get, I guess. Yeah. What um, I thought when I started the return and what I realized once I got all the documents from the client probably is counts for yeah. most of those too. Right. Right. So, so I can, I can see where 40% might even probably be a conservative estimate. <laughs> You know, yeah. in, in terms of, uh, you know, the, the the quality and the agreement, you know, among, mm -hmm. you know, if, if, if you had a panel of different auditors looking at the same set of information, they might come up with a different result. I, you know, it, my only experience with audit is passing the exam, right? Yeah. You know, and, 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 and taking the, the intro to audit class, um, maybe a couple other, you know, upper level classes with that. So, uh, you know, I, I find it uh, pretty daunting. The, the idea of transitioning away from tax to audit just based yeah. on, you know, what I've been uh, told and that kind of stuff. But do you, um, you know, you, you were kind of, you were kind of shoved into that transition in your experience, but do you find that there's some, some carryover that, that some of what you, the work you were doing, some of the expertise you built in tax, did, did any of that carry over uh, into audit? I mean, you know, especially given the relationship, like I said, between, yeah. you know, the way retirement contributions and accounts and all that kind of works, it seems to have some sort of relationship to tax or am I just making that up? Yeah, no. So it's technically like a portion of there's, it's a technically an IRS form, which is interesting. So like the tax prep side and understanding that is really interesting. So if you were to prepare the form 5500 that I'm attaching this with, yeah, absolutely. But what I found more was it was the general concepts um, that really help. If you, in the same way, one of the best tax managers and now a partner of his own firm I knew started on the audit side. So he understood the financial accounting side and that helped him to be a really good tax accountant because when books came messy or he was trying to figure out the best planning opportunities, he understood the background numbers. So that was really helpful from the tax perspective. But it was more of, I'd say, the client management skills, the engagement management skills project management skills, that's the biggest part of these engagements is that they're very project management heavy because there's a million items you have to ask from the client. They're honestly not that interested in this audit. It's non-revenue -gener generating. It's, it's a, a hassle they have to do every year. And so just figure out how to motivate and work with them to get that done is really the biggest part of it. But I, I think each part has helped me. I understand the tax implications of why a highly comped owner would start this plan. 
And now I understand the audit piece of how to do that. And I'm really learning the wealth side of that as well. Like how are fee structures in the plan coming about? How do you invest that money wisely and, and grow it over time? And so that, it's been fun. I think it's a really, it makes you a really well-rounded advisor to have all of those aspects. Unfortunately, the actual tax law doesn't translate directly because these plans are tax exempt, essentially, unless you really mess up. Well, that bit you say you, you mentioned being an advisor, and that, that leads to my next question, which which gets more toward you know one of the themes running in this show is is you know how do we push beyond just the the compliance work or or the the deliverable right the minimum expectations of you know the engagement and push into actually you know helping our clients either run better businesses or you know be better in terms of preparation for their personal finances all these kinds of things so you know when the actual audit is done right when you've completed that audit you know, what are you doing to push beyond that to to help the client to advise the client do, do you get into any of that with any of your clients or or does audit kind of make that difficult you know what what what's the what's the next step with, with a client beyond yeah. just the compliance work yeah that's great and so thankfully there is the opportunity for us to give them advice and so we're required to report certain what are they call what they call reportable findings so if we find errors we can give recommendations on how to correct them we can't make the decision on this is the way you should do it obviously then we're acting like management but yeah a hundred percent if i find errors then i'll give them recommendations if i see deficiencies in hey your investments look like they're completely underperforming in the the greatest tenure bull run we've had in a long time then yeah would have you talked to investment <laughs> advisor, right? Or if, like you mentioned, there's a massive fiduciary duty. So we have some some clients and I've had them in my past, not current ones, but they just, you can tell they don't care about the plan. They aren't trying to oversee it. They're not trying to run it well. It's just something that they have to have to be competitive in the employment market. So if any of that happens, uh, which thankfully I'm not dealing with those people right now, then I would just, I would advise them like, hey, let's get an outsourced fiduciary. Let's, let's get you talking to an outsourced fiduciary. If you're overwhelmed by the plan, let's get you talking to a third party administrator. And so there is value, I think, there if you listen to what they're trying to do. Because I'm sure there are people listening right now and they're like, oh my gosh, I thought this was about CAS. And now we're talking about the driest audit I've ever heard about in my life. And that's exactly how the clients feel. So channel that thought. And that's probably how the clients feel about what we talk about to them sometimes. So understanding how to engage them where they're at and understand what they care about that's where you can really provide value for them. So from my perspective, making the audit as simple and pain-free as possible is probably the highest value activity I can get, right? Can't get creative on the audit, need to follow standards, can't give the, I can't save the money on the audit other than offering reasonable fees and telling them maybe about a better service provider. But what they do really value in that case is, hey, Michael made it really simple. His portal is intuitive. Communication was clear. Um, the audit process was as painless as possible, given the context. And that's what I think was really that value that clients saw for me. So I think I add value on that side in the actual experience. And then I add value in terms of, hey, here's the recommendations of how you can be running your plan better and, and avoid a nasty Department of Labor encounter. Two awesome nuggets right in there. Um, one, and what we've found in working with small business owners is that the more engaged that they are, the more likely they are to be successful. So it's really interesting that you point out that you can tell when somebody just doesn't care about their plan. Yeah, That would be, that's a really great indicator to look for, right? Yeah. So that's one piece. And then the other piece, I'm hoping that you can unpack for us that notion of how do we make things less painless or yeah, less painless for our clients. Yeah. One of the one of the questions that I wrote down specifically to ask you as I was kind of going through your Twitter feed to prepare for this interview was about your client portal. 
Yeah, and that's one so, of the things that we've we've focused on. And I'm wondering how you made that decision and where you landed and all that good stuff. What does that look like? Yeah, so I when I started at my firm, and this very brief nugget for anyone starting their own firm, I went with my old firms as much as I could tech stack simply so I could get up and running fast with the understanding you can change SaaS products really easily, especially things like a portal. And my, my clients were already familiar with this. It would be a different branding. So I use ShareFile right now for a portal, which I like. They have some nice integrated e-signature features. They, the portal's intuitive, good like integrated Outlook options. What it does not do well is requestless management. So like I said, I have to ask for a lot of things. A simple example is I'll probably have a list of 10 to, 10 to 25 people and I'll say, hey, I need a hire form for them, a term form. I need their pay rate. I need a payroll register and a time card. That could be 100 plus items plus various other things I'll need from them. It doesn't manage that workflow piece well. And so my old firm and me currently before I integrate a new process, it's been an Excel sheet. And then I'll give very hopefully well summarized lists and minimal communication all in one place. What I'll be moving to is most likely Sherlink. And I've talked to three other partners or directors at firms that do the plans I do, and they love it. And what I really enjoy about it is it has, is it Kanban? Like the green, yellow, red. Yeah. Okay. So it has a Kanban dashboard mm -hmm. for you and the client. It has automated reminders for the client on items that are there. The, the feature I'm most excited about is you enter the request list and the client puts something up and you approve or deny it. So they can know at any point was the census that I gave you enough? Was the Were these payroll documents right or wrong? If they were wrong, why were they wrong? That's the hardest part we've seen is we, we would say, hey, we need these five things. They said, I sent you those things. And you're like, yeah, you sent them to me for 2019. We're auditing 2020. <laughs> like, I'm sure this is a very typical experience on the tax side. I remember it being on ours. So yep. it, it, it gives the client a sense of control, I think, in terms of, oh, this is why it's not. You can chat directly on each item. So you can say, hey, thanks, Cindy got everything other than the participants payroll register for 2020. We need that. It was 2019 that was uploaded. Um, they have automated reminders. This is something that I've realized, I think from a psychology side, if I send five emails to a client and, and kind of like, Hey, you still haven't given this to me there. It can kind of create a contentious relationship between me and the client. But if it's a computer reminding you, they're like, Oh, oops. It, and you know, make, make your automated emails obviously automated, but you know, same with invoicing. It's better to, have an automated reminder telling your clients to pay you than it is to go hustle them for money. Cause it just feel the relationship feels different, right? Everyone's used to automated reminders. Here's your credit card payment. Hey, this bill's due. Um, so that's, that's one of the big pieces I want to do on the client side. My, my old firm didn't use e-signature for engagement letters. You had the option to, but it was, it was time consuming. Whereas, and so we chase people down for wet signatures on paper. And it's just, when you're talking with the CFOs or the presidents of companies, it's wild. So, all of that, like we literally would chase it down for two for two weeks because it would be like at a doctor group, it would be the CFO who's also a practicing physician, also like doing split shifts at another hospital. And you're like, I need this person to sign a piece of paper for me. So everything's now on the phone. We're going to have Surelink, which gives a lot more information to clients. Um, and also, I think one of the advantages that, that the values that I offer is they're working directly with me. So you'll hear complaints for large, large firms that, you know, the staff cycle out every year or two. So you have to retrain the staff. They don't understand your business. They don't have a high technical knowledge of the plan. Um, so those are the ways I think I, I I have in terms of trying to make that experience better. Did I answer your question too? Sometimes my brain just goes down the rabbit hole. I'm not sure, but I, I loved it. And I've got another question for you. Oh, sure. Go for it. Um, yeah. So we're heavy into automation and that's where the that's where our space is going is, is heavy automation. 
And one of the things that we hear all the time is, well, we want something that's a little bit more human. Mm -hmm. So how do you balance? And I totally agree with you as far as the the automated reminders and things like that. It, it makes that relationship less difficult, put it that way. Um, but how do you balance that need for these automated reminders and having this robotic thing with having a service and a touch point that is very human? Yeah, that's a great question. And I think wise to consider now before it, it swings the completely other way, right? So for now, it's everything yeah. is an email and a phone call. And maybe someday everything will be automated reminders. So I kick off all of my audits with like a planning call, which I found really helpful if the client wants it. If they're familiar with it, we just typically exchange emails. So think a, a personal touch point. It's me writing it or a call where we actually go through it. And then all of my actual requests, each stage of the audit, request lists, uh, field work, issuing the financial statements or giving them a draft review, will all have a, a personal touch point. It's just that recurring, hey, we're still missing this. That would happen. And if they ignored, say, a week cycle of or two week cycle of automated reminders, depending on how quickly they're trying to get the job out, I would 100 percent just give them a call or, or send them an email. I would say giving a call is the number one thing. That, that's the hardest thing to teach staff because they'll say, well, I emailed them five times and they're not responding. I was like, oh, did you try calling them? There's their they're direct lines right in the stage. You're like, oh, I don't want to do that. I'll see email them again. Well, that's obviously not working. So most people love a phone call. <laughs> and most people kind of have that slightly ADHD brain where if you call them and you're front of mind for them, they'll jump on it right then. So I've, I've seen a, a high success rate uh, for that. But I do try to make sure that it's a personal touch on it on every stage of the audit and um, balancing that just to make sure that there's the efficiency and the automation, but also they don't feel like it's they're just interacting with a software. So the phone... Imagine that. Yeah, exactly. I, I enjoy it too. And I think, I think clients enjoy it. If you can be just a slightly personable CPA, uh, people enjoy it. I literally had a quote where I bid an audit for uh, or just a really nice woman who was a CFO of a nonprofit. And she says, wow, this was way more pleasant than I thought it was going to be. And I was like, great. That, that's, the, <laughs> that's what I kind of hope for on the CPA side. Um, and so... Do that, have some human contact with your clients, interact with them as people. And it, I, I found it's a big advantage. So aside from the uh, communication side of things, in terms of the actual work of the audit, what is what can you automate? And you know what are you hoping to be automating? And what is left that just probably could never be automated, right? Coming from someone who just doesn't know really the audit workflow and the audit process that much. Like where, where is automation? What's the status of automation within audit? It's getting a lot better. So it's so funny, actually, Chris, that you're wearing the audit minor t-shirt right now. And I'm assuming you're not sponsored. I'm not sponsored by them. I know, I know Kelly, she's great, but I have no like financial interest with them yet. Um, maybe someday I'd love to work with them, but, uh, they have a process that takes these provider reports and then spits them into a standardized format. So that's one stage of automation that's really interesting and coming out um, is you can take disparate reports for your staff, right? Every set of pack reports looks different, very similar to a lot of tax documents, but it spits them into a consistent format for your staff, which I think is a great concept because that was what I tried to do when I built out template binders was how do you take disparate or different information and make it look familiar for the people preparing it, right? Our brains like patterns, our brains love the familiar, and it just makes onboarding and training new employees easier. So AutoMiner is one tool that allows for that automation. 
a lot of the providers are getting a lot better about exports of large amounts of data into CSV or Excel, which is super helpful because then you just do basic matching formulas, right? Like you can build it in Python or you can just do a simple VLOOKUP or match or index type of uh, function there. So those parts I can absolutely do. The, the part that's manual for now until OCR gets really good. And I, I just talked to a firm about this because they'd like to potentially build in this space. But I was like, hey, look, I love what you're preaching. I think this is an awesome idea, but if you're saying that you're going to have better OCR than Adobe, like that's a pretty impressive claim. Like, so maybe you will. And I'm sure everyone said that nobody could build a better phone than the BlackBerry until it happened. But I was like, that's a pretty impressive claim. So I was like, when you do it, let me know. I'll demo it for you. I'll test it. I'll do whatever you want to make it better. But OCR is just not quite there. Um, so the, the paper forms, you know, if you have a paper I-9, if you have a paper um, pay offer letter, if you have a paper raise form, then that stuff we'll need a human to look at. But other than that, matching data in a, so for example, matching data from ADP to what was deposited into Fidelity, if I can get two Excel spreadsheets with that data, that should be a very quick um, program. So I know there's another provider and I'm forgetting the name of it, but they built like a full audit suite. So think I, I use Thomson Reuters. So they have it's my file room, essentially, where all the audit work papers are housed. They have a methodology called Checkpoint Engage. It used to be PPC. Um, so they house that. And then I have some Excel and Word documents in there. But somebody else developed, I think it's um, Price Quebecca, I think, is the firm that had the partner who originally started. I don't remember the name of the software. But it basically automates massive parts of that. So you, you stick in big Excel documents, and a lot of the work is automatically done. You check a few boxes and then it generates a lot of the reports. So it was really interesting. It, I was like a little overwhelmed. It was like a Kanban explosion with just a, like a lot of status updates and it would require like a full methodology switch. So it's not a tool you can bolt on, but I thought that was really interesting and they were running really efficient audits using it. And and so, you know, back, back to the earlier question about, you know, pushing beyond just that compliance work with the client, right? The more you can automate and the quicker you can connect the dots across these Excel files and paper documents, right? The more time you've got to build a more comprehensive report and then spend some of that time on the phone or on video calls, right? Talking to the client about here's where you're at, here's where yeah. you could be, you know, let's push beyond that, right? Exactly. What's your experience been with younger staff and trying them to be, trying to get them to be more human and pick up the phone and setting that expectation? I, it is interesting because I hated picking up the phone. And then I think I just finally got frustrated with not getting responses. So I, I wouldn't even say I'm a, a big evangelist uh, or I would have been a big evangelist of picking up the phone. I just saw it as really effective. And then I enjoyed it uh, as a human touch. So I just try to tell staff, hey, look, if this isn't working, definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over. Um, they're very nice. Just call them. I think it's a fear of what happens if I get asked a question I don't know? What happens if they scream at me? What happens if I look like an idiot? And yeah, all those things can happen. You're going to look like an idiot at some point in your career. But I think those are a lot less likely than people think they are. Often clients, especially busy ones, can come across as like blunt or brisk on email. But then you'll call them and they'll be like, oh, hey, how are you? I'm having a wonderful day. You're like, that was definitely not the tone of your email. <laughs> so I, I start with there by encouraging like, hey, don't read into an email at all. Often people are just typing it out fast. They're not sitting there obsessively reviewing it like you do as a staff. Because staff, I think, like will rewrite an email for an hour because they think it's important. And then you'll get an okay from like a, a CFO and you think you're the worst person in the world. So just encouraging them there. And then I think a lot of it's modeling it. So if 
if you have a staff that doesn't know what to do on the phone, take them on ride-alongs. Teams makes this really easy. Um, so when I was working with my coworker, Hannah, at the other firm, before I started transitioning to my own firm, I was, I was just bringing her on for every call I would do with clients because there's no real way to know how to do it often other than to just watch people do it or hope they can figure them out. So any anytime I see resistance like that, I'll usually try to model it, bring them on like a ride along or sit there and coach them on the call beforehand or after them. And then I thought I saw that was pretty effective in terms of getting them over that uncomfortable hump. But I think part of it's just experience too. You know, no staff wants to email or no staff wants to call seniors like, okay, if I have to, and the manager like, I'm just going to call and get it done with. Yep, for sure. So what's the, what's the goal for the firm? Where are you going? Oh gosh. I thought I was going to build a lifestyle business. And then I was like, I think I just want to make this thing a behemoth. Um, (laughs) 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 And it's, it's this conflicting insanity. I think Nicole just asked a question about this too, about why would you choose to do one versus the other? And I thought the lifestyle business sounds good. So for me, that's like, you know, you make, I think if you make a quarter of a million dollars and have a lot of free time, that's pretty amazing. Like, you know, you'll hear numbers from like large partner firms like, oh, they're making 500,000, 750, a million. Like that's a very interesting amount of money. Uh, And I think it would be really fun to make that amount of money. But if I'm sacrificing like large parts of my life to make that money, that seems like a wild trade-off for me. Uh, So I have a son and I mentioned Emily, my wife. So Grayson's my son. He's almost two years old. I just love him. He's awesome. I got to spend like six weeks off with him when he was, I think like eight months old, we split our paternity and maternity leave. So I just appreciated that having that time and flexibility. So I thought, no way, um, I'm going to do lifestyle. Like get a number in your head, right? I think like 250 would be a great, I, I live in Southern California for anyone thinking that's an insane number too. Like the houses that are starter level now are like between 800,000 and a million. So if that number sounds wild, that's why you need the 250. Uh, but I, I started with that and then I realized how much I missed working with teams. So I think my particular skill sets are not on project management or on detail work. I I do it when I have to, because I've done it for years, but I love doing business development. I love building teams. I love taking care of of staff that I work with and just equipping them to do their job. Uh, And I really love the bigger picture and vision. And it's very hard to do all of that with a lifestyle single employee firm or with an outsource like admin say. And so I realized that I had to kind of choose which one of those. So I'll start as a solo firm and build it to a quarter of a million. That's kind of what my goal is that I stated on Twitter, but I can see myself scaling pretty quickly. Um, There's just so much work out there in this industry. I I met someone else in LA doing the exact same thing I am and he's growing gangbusters and we haven't bid or, you know, competed with each other on a single job. There's literally, I think, almost a hundred thousand of these audits and a lot of them are for small companies and there's just a lot of firms getting out of them. So I, I think I'm in growth mode oh. now. And part of that relates back to, I have frustration and I think my, my Twitter rantings probably show this about how firms are run. And I try to be non-judgmental about this because having now started a company, I understand the stress that's involved, like the challenge of making, like I have to make payroll for myself every month. And that's scary enough. I can't imagine doing it for 300 employees. So I want to, I want to have a lot of humility in regards to that, but there are things that I look at where I'm like, that seems like an obviously poor way to do something that's had poor results in the past and we don't want to change it or, Hey, there's no way we can stop burning out staff on busy season. We just have to do it that way. That way. And I'm like, maybe you do, or maybe you don't. Or this is the way comp structure is. And anyone who asks for more than this is just greedy, ungrateful, you know, whatever millennials. And so I, 
I think you have a lot of an imbalance in the accounting industry. It, it is essentially a functional Ponzi scheme in, in which you really got to bring in new partners <laughs> to get your buyout. And it's a functional Ponzi scheme. It's, it's not like a, a non-value add Ponzi scheme. It really does. It's a great career. But the model right now is, hey, we're going to extract a ton of value. You're going to give a ton of value for 15 years. And hopefully at the end of that 15 years, you can be a partner or not, but maybe you will. Um, and those are just that model. I don't, it doesn't strike me as compelling. So I was like, let me go try. I'm going to go try to build something different. I want to think about equity and incentive compensation differently. And if I fail, I fail great. And I'll, you know, slink back to a firm with my tail between my legs. But, uh, I don't think that's what's going to happen because I see other people successfully executing on that. So I'm just trying to emulate what other people are doing and apply it to my little, my little part of this world. I went straight to uh, owning my own firm. So I have no experience with all that, except for uh, spending about uh, eight, eight to 10 months working for a very small firm uh, here in town. And that was, there was, there was never any discussion of potential partnership, but uh, we never got anywhere near that far. But, um, but there was at one point where he brought in, um, a called me into his office and sat me down and he had come up with this one page uh, compensation plan that was all based around productivity bonus and all this kind of stuff. And I was just like, this is not, this is not what I signed up for. I don't, you know, it, it was all based on how many returns could I spit out <laughs> and how much time and how many hours could I log in a year and you know, billable versus non-billable. And, and this was, you know, this was all four months after he hired me on the premise that he doesn't track time and he uses fixed and value pricing, and, you know, and it just, but, but he, but he brought in new software right before tax season that made it to where he could easily track our time. And so he wanted to get his, you know, get some value out of that time tracking software. And uh, that was the only time I've ever tracked my time. Uh, was those couple months and I I yeah. would never do it again. I would never do it with one of my employees. It just, it just was such a different way of thinking about productivity and compensation and relating to your employees and, and, you know, all those kinds of bundled issues um, that I had never experienced before. I mean, I'd had other jobs as an employee. I'd even had, you know, jobs in retail where you clock in and clock out. Right. But it wasn't to the degree of, you know, yeah, if you were just standing around, you know, your supervisor would yell at you and tell you to get back to work. But it wasn't to the degree of just like, we are tracking your productivity and we have your compensation like based on that and all that kind of stuff. So it was just, it was a different kind of way of thinking that just did not jive with me at all. And it's bad data. Like, I'm going to call it out right now because I can now. All of that data is bad data. And the joke was I had friends who worked in the big four and they're like, the partners want you to meet budget. So they look at you and they're like, enter all your time, wink, wink, but the budget is this, wink, wink. And it's the idea of, oh yeah, you met the budget, you didn't hit hours, but they know, wink, wink, what you did. It's bad data. It, it And then they're like, oh, we're gonna, we want you to enter all your time. And then a, a staff gets yelled at for blowing the budget. And they're like, well, what do you think? What do you think I did? I entered all the time. This is a terrible client, like poorly bid, poorly staffed. And this is what happened. Um, I can't think of a worse idea than billing based off of time. And here's why. This is the way I would describe it. You are setting yourself up to be punished for efficiency as a business owner. That is literally what it means. Because if you're truly billing by the hour, that means if the return took you three hours last year, 
and you built amazing automations and processes or hired a better staff and it took two hours, you should charge the client less. And if you don't do that, you're just doing this mutant hybrid of value billing and hourly billing, which is why not just go fully to value billing, which is this is what the market will bear, which I have to do this. This is what's beautiful. I can't hourly bill ever because there is a market cap for these audits and I have to charge that market cap slightly above it. If it's a more complex client, slightly below it, if I want to win work, but there's no, I can't tell them, oh, well, it's going to take me 60 hours and my bill rate's 350. So you just have to pay $18,500. And they'll be like, huh, nice try. So it's much more on my industry. Everything's fixed fee and everything's about efficiency. So as long as you bill by the hour, compensate by the hour, assess performance by the hour, uh, you're using goofy data um, to make up like magic numbers, essentially. Well, and, and then shoving the responsibility for that onto the client, right? And, and not and not taking any of that internally. Yeah, exactly. I'm going to serve this one up to because I just went on a rant yesterday, <laughs> or maybe the day before with my team. There is a video, which I'm not going to name, where am I going to point to it, <clears throat> uh, of somebody saying you really need to track time. Because if you have it will it will flag inefficient or ineffective team members. Mm. And I mean, we all know that timesheets are just opinions anyway, really. Yeah. So if you, if you were going to punt this responsibility to an inefficient or ineffective team member, that's it's, it's opinion. It's opinion. It's not, it's not, it's to your point. It's terrible data. What are we even doing? I don't, I, it's mind boggling that we still have this that's out there in the world. Yeah. And that's an interesting concept. I've heard that. And I try to consider these arguments again, very, I'm very new to the owning of the firm. I managed a large, so I managed like, it's like maybe 600, $700,000 practice. And I had two or three part-time staff here in the States, multiple overseas. So like I, I did have the experience of running it, like say a business unit. So I'm not ignorant of this, but I just, when you're working on teams, I would be shocked. And maybe this is where leaders and partners have kind of gotten out of touch because they are not in touch with it. But I have never met a senior or a manager who did not know exactly who the high and low performers on their team were. This is not a mystery. Mm -hmm. The mystery is often, why is this person still on a team? Or why did this person get an equivalent raise to me? The mystery is not, oh, I'm shocked. The person who never shows up to meetings, never logs in, <laughs> has terrible quality of work papers, is the low performer. It's typically partners who aren't listening to their staff. It's measuring okay. the wrong thing, right? Like it, it, it we can me it's easier to measure. You don't have to actively mm -hmm. engage that employee in order to measure their hours and therefore you're drawing the conclusion of they're not mm -hmm. being productive whereas, you know, if you really were interested in developing a relationship with the employee, making the employee feel welcome to work there, promoting, you know, not literally promoting the employee, but promoting the employee as a member of your team, you know, you, you you wanted to show that you were on their side. You wanted them to be better workers. You wanted them, you know, to feel like they had a future in the company. There are so many better ways to do that, such as a weekly one-on-one, -on -one, right? You know, take 30 minutes, sit yeah. down with the employee, go, you know, ask them, what did you accomplish yeah. last week? Right. You know, and if they, if they're fumbling every week, if they can't come up with a clear yeah. answer, well then, you know, maybe there's an issue there. Right. But if they're coming to you every week saying, I got this, this, and this knocked out. Well, yeah. I don't care how many hours they spent in their seat. I don't care, you know, how many hours they spent a billable versus non-billable. If they're coming to me week after week and they say, I got this, this, and this done, and that is real legitimate output, right? 
then you got your answer and you didn't need to invest in time tracking software. You didn't need to tie compensation to it. You didn't need to come up with all these weird systems that really don't make sense outside Mm -hmm. of these professional services industries. Yeah. And the way I think about it is what do you want to accomplish? So if everything's about an individual's performance or hours, then you might hoard work, right? Or if it your job's realization, which I hope everyone knows is, but it's just basically time cost, your bill rate times hours over the fee, um, then you might not have new staff. That might take a little bit more time. Um, you might hoard the good work and dump bad work on other people. What I want in my firm is a few things. I want to make money. First and foremost, it's really bad to run a business and not make money. Second, I want to have cohesive teams. And so if you're compensating people on an individual basis and assessing them on an individual basis, but you want them to act as a team, that seems like a a kind of goofy metric. So I want a really talented senior to spend the extra hour training the intern. I want her to build out training programs that help people in the future. I want him to clean up documentation so that it's clear next year. But if that's hitting this individual metric, then why would you focus on those things? But if you say instead as like, hey, this team needs to openly and honestly communicate expectations and performance, and you're all going to as reasonably as a group kind of enter into a bonus pool and then it'll be distributed amongst the group. I think that's a much better approach than, hey, you individual people are going to get compensated or assessed on your own performance, but you need to functionally and cohesively work as a team. I just don't think that there's a super effective way to do that. So that's the model I really want to try. And that going back to the question of, am I going to start a big firm? Um, yeah, I think, I think I am because I want, or a firm where I have employees, because I want to try this model. This is a simple 30 second elevator pitch on my model. I think revenue is what drives profit, not revenue and expenses, obviously. It's like a dumb tautology I just said, but revenue is what drives profit, not realization, right? You could have 10,000 of revenue and 100,000% realization, and you still have $10,000 of revenue. Like that's not enough to live on or pay your employees. And so because of that, what I want to focus on is how do I produce revenue in a sustainable way, right? If you think about it from like an economic or uh, an environmental standpoint, right? How do we produce energy without wrecking the environment? How do we extract resources without wrecking the environment? Same thing, like people are a finite resource. You can't burn them out forever and expect that they're gonna keep coming back to work. So how do we sustainably create value from a team? The way I look at it is you have to understand what your clients are doing and how much revenue you can actually produce. So a simple example is say, these are round numbers. An audit is $10,000 and a staff could reasonably do 20 audits over the year. These numbers are not anywhere realistic. Hopefully you can do a lot more if you're efficient. But that means they can possibly generate 200,000 of revenue. And then that leaves some money for the firm for overhead. Okay, that might be a profitable model. So you might say to that staff, hey, look, you're making good money. The firm's making good money. Are you interested in making more money or doing more work? And they might say, no, thank you. I have a family. I love to travel. I'm doing education. I love volunteering. So I'm really good at this place. And you say, cool, great. Like that's that's where we're at. This is your, you, you know, your employment agreement says you got to do a certain amount of work to be here, but that's cool. Enjoy it. Do it more efficiently. Leave and enjoy your life. Or somebody might be like, heck yeah, I'm trying to afford housing in California. So I need to be making $600,000 a year. And so you say, great, we're going to bring in every new audit and you're going to get recurring annual revenue, a chunk of that. You're going to get 10% of every fee we bring in over your amount. And so there's a ton of nuance here. Anyone listening to this is like, well, here's the problem with it. What about bad work versus good work assignment? All these are considerations. So in order for the system to work, you have to really understand your people and you have to really understand your clients and shocker, shocker, that's what every firm should be doing anyway. 
So if you're, 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 if you say, I can't do a system like that because I don't know how profitable my clients are or I don't know how productive my staff are, there's a bigger issue there. So what I like about the model is it will, it'll absolutely crater and implode if you run your firm poorly. So I call it like a high risk, high reward model. The current CPA model is low risk, low reward, right? Just make them work for 15 years, burn a bunch of them out. Enough suckers will come out of, you know, accounting school that you can get more, hopefully, maybe not. And this model, I would say is higher risk, higher reward. If you mess it up, uh, it's not going to work at all. But if you execute it well, you're going to have some pretty high returns, I think. And I think staff would want to work in that. Like everyone hates when new work gets dumped on their plate when they're already busy. But if they have capacity and they're like, oh, by the way, you're getting a check because we added this audit, I think it creates a completely different incentive. The owner's incentives and the staff's incentives are aligned. But I think the key there is the golden rule, right? Like run your firm in such a way that you're treating your employees the way you would want to be treated if you were an employee in your firm, right? Yeah. And and if you can just keep that in mind, like I, I know it's more complicated than that, right? But like if that yeah. can be your sort of North Star, right? As you're, as you're thinking about bringing yeah. on staff and, you know, assigning work to them and compensating them and those kinds of things, you know, it, it, it would be... Yeah, there's a little bit more risk there, but it would be hard to go wrong if you could just keep that, you know, keep that focus. I'm sorry. I'm going to digress on this just for a second. The math is what kills me. So again, I, I got out of tax and nothing I ever say is tax advice. It's probably actually anti-tax advice. But, you know, there's a the whole phase outs of the specified service income for the QBI and all that, right? So actually, if you're an accountant or a lawyer or something, the more money, there is a place where the more money you make, it actually like negatively impacts your rate, which is not typical. Most people, I don't want to earn a dollar because it'll bump my, that doesn't happen. It does happen with a specified service income. So say an accounting partner. And more than that, if you're making 500 grand as an accounting partner, you're probably paying 50% plus if you have state taxes. So this is the thing I really struggled with. Is say you have like a 20 partner firm and each of those partners could be like, oh, great. Are we going to bonus ourselves another 50 grand this year, which would be a million dollars? Or are we going to invest that million dollars in staff? Think about... The difference of $50,000 for a partner is probably nothing. It's like, do I get the, the self-driving package on a Tesla or do I have a hot tub in the pool? You know, and I'm not going to judge everybody's individual situation, but if you're making over 400000 I think it becomes irrelevant, kind of the extra money. But for a staff making $60,000 when rent and groceries and all this stuff went up 20% last year, $5,000, $4,000 extra means an enormous amount of money. So if you think about how could money in the firm create the most value internally, right? We think of external value in terms of what we give our clients. Are we thinking about internal allocation of value for uh, for our firm? And I was like, a million dollars going to staff through managers or staff through senior managers is going to be so much more impactful than a million dollars going to partners. Now, there's a limit to that, right? You have to you have to reap the rewards of taking the risk to start a business. I recognize that, but I, that's the way I want to think about it. And I just hope I don't forget that. I'm totally honest, I could forget that and do the exact same thing myself. Sometimes. That reminds me of Gary Vaynerchuk's advice, which is that, you know, if you have employees, if you have a staff, you don't work for your customers, you work for your staff and your staff works for the customers, right? And so if you want to keep your customers yeah. happy, you got to keep your staff happy, right? It's no longer about you, yeah. right? It's about, it's about your staff. I think that absolutely nails it. <clears throat> and we are bumping up on time. Michael, this has been a great conversation and very far ranging, everything from functional Ponzi <laughs> schemes to how do we invest in staff as we I think grow. I forgot to talk about firm. outsourcing too. <laughs> so, so we've covered a lot of ground there. I don't want to bump your, uh, your lights here too much, but uh, yeah, that's, a, that's another fun topic. Cause I think that's how we originally connected on this, Jeremy. So we, we'll do it some other time. We'll do a, a co-thread. 
whatever's coming out these days on Twitter. We'll have to bring you back on and have a whole conversation about outsourcing. So oh, I would love to. It's it's a fun area. It was a wild experience to do it, and, and I would love to talk about it again. For sure. Well, Michael, where can everybody find you? Uh, so Twitter primarily. I really am focusing on that right now. So it's at Michael Myhouse. Uh, and so, and also my firm's My House CPA. So I got a website, LinkedIn. Um, reach out anywhere. I love, I try to respond to every single DM unless it's a sales pitch. So <laughs> please don't try to sell me SEO services for accountants. Otherwise, I'll talk to you. Fantastic. Good deal. Well, I, Michael, thanks again for being on the show. Really appreciate it. This has been a really interesting conversation. To be honest, I wasn't sure how it was going to go. You're our first auditor uh, on here. So, um, <laughs> so, but, uh, but yeah, it, it, it's really been fantastic. And yeah, like Chris said, definitely have to get, get you back on and talk about some of these other topics some more. Um, good deal. Well, if you are not already following the show, please do that. Please uh, subscribe on YouTube at CPA Advisory Show. Uh, it's the same uh, handle on Twitter at CPA Advisory Show. And be sure to subscribe and review us in your podcast player of choice as well. Uh, I'm Jeremy Wells. And for my co-host, Chris Hervishan, this is the CPA Advisory Show. Thank you very much. 